I don't want you to get too used to this PowerPoint now. This is just for today. I'm feeling kind of alone without my overhead projector up here. We'll solve that next week. Don't you worry about it now. Uh, I've got some maps I want to show you in a minute. That's the reason we're using uh, PowerPoint. Thanks to Tyler Jacobus and Dee Walker. We appreciate their work on that. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't get all the way through Zephaniah, and I, I'm afraid that's going to do permanent damage on your character. Uh, <laughs> you're going to be thinking the rest of your life, I'm so sorry I didn't get through the rest of Zephaniah. But uh, look at your notes, and, and your Bibles have great footnotes, and uh, you can complete the study on Zephaniah. I think we saw last time that the key to joy is seeking the Lord, seeking righteousness, which is conformity to His law, and seeking humility, which is at the very essence of Christ's character. He was meek and lowly. And He put Himself below us in order to lift us up and exalt us. So He's the key to humility. And whenever we look to Him, God will help us think about ourselves rightly. And uh, I know this is difficult. Uh, humility. Uh, one, one time years ago, I preached a sermon on humility uh, because it was in the text, you know, as we went through that book of the Bible, whichever one it was. And one of our deacons said to me after the service, he said, Preacher, that, that was a good sermon on humility, especially considering that's not your long suit. <laughs> so, uh, I'm sorry I, I can't give you much from personal experience about how to be humble. Uh, except that I know that we're supposed to look to Jesus. And whatever humility I've ever experienced in those fleeting moments of my life, it's come from looking to Jesus. Uh, it's hard to believe that after uh, today, we only have two books of the Bible left. I, I just can't believe it. We're going to start Zechariah next week. Zechariah will make you feel a little bit like you're going back into Revelation. It's not quite that crazy, but it, it has some, some things, especially in the beginning of Zechariah, which are highly symbolic and that are debatable and so on. And we'll take a look at a good Old Testament apocalyptic book. It's a, it's a good uh, way to look at a book that's similar to Revelation in some ways. We're not going to spend much time in it. We had only scheduled four weeks in Zechariah, if my schedule is correct here. And we are going to have a special treat that's going to make us do it in three weeks. So we're going to deal with Zechariah in three weeks. And then if you look at your schedule, you can see that we're going to take a long time in Malachi. Now, the reason is, Malachi, it's the last book in your Old Testament, and it has so many great things in it for men in our age. It's a very relevant book, and we're just going to slow down and really deal with Malachi uh, in more detail, and I hope for our good. But there is a special treat on March 23rd. Don had just mentioned about uh, this missions trip that, that he and others are trying to pull together. I hope some more of you will sign up for that. I think it will be a great thing for us to do when uh, one of these all-time disasters hits. It seems to me that uh, we ought to be on the front line of those who help. So we appreciate those of you who have already signed up and those of you who are thinking about it. But that very Thursday morning, before you take off at 8 o'clock, uh, there's going to be a special speaker here, Dr. Philip Johnson. I don't know if you know Dr. Johnson. Uh, he is uh, a lawyer, but he has chosen in the midst of his career to do some serious study on the issue of origins and particularly to uh, critique Darwinism. And... Uh, He's, he's, uh, he's not a scientist, but he knows how to assimilate the scientific data. He's a lawyer, and so he's making logical arguments. And he's become one of the premier uh, uh, analysts of this whole question. And, and we're facing it uh, in, you know, big time in our own country. Pennsylvania has had this major case. Uh, Ohio has had a major case. And probably every state has from time to time. Dr. Johnson is a graduate of Harvard and uh, University of Chicago School of Law and then He's taught for 30 years at University of California, Berkeley, in law school. And, uh, he's, but his name has really become more known to us through the books that he's published. Uh, you may remember uh, the title, I think one of the more popular ones was Darwin on Trial. <laughs> so the lawyer takes, him in, takes Darwin into the courtroom and, and cross-examines him. So that's a very important issue, very current issue in our own time. And so since he's in town... We've asked to, to borrow some of his time on, on that Thursday morning. So that's March 23rd, uh, and it would be a great time to bring someone that, that you know is particularly interested in the questions of origins. Well, we are in Haggai. Yes, Haggai. Another familiar book to you out of the Bible. Uh, 
We did, I just love studying the Minor Prophets with you because, I mean, for some of you guys, this is the first time you've ever read them. <laughs> so it's really exciting because they just seem so distant and so uh, difficult. We just haven't spent a whole lot of time in these books, but they're fabulous. Look on page 1504 in your, in your Bible, Haggai chapter 1, and let's, let's read through the first 11 verses, and then we'll take a look at what it all means. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. All right. Now, I want us to notice, first of all, that we, in these 11 verses, we are called to build the house of God. We are called to build the house of God. Now, this book will often come back into the church when the church has a building campaign. (laughs) I mean, seriously. And this is when most churches ever hear of the book of Haggai or ever hear a sermon on it. It's when the pastor's telling you you're living in your paneled houses. What about the house of God? And, uh, And to inspire people to give to the building campaign. Now, any of us who have thought about the parallel between the Old Testament temple and this church building that we're living in have realized there's a difference. And in your mind, you're going, I think the preacher's not quite got this right. Because in the temple, obviously, this was the dwelling place of God. And it was where the sacrifices were made, where the Shekinah glory dwelt. It was the preeminent place of God's blessing and dwelling among his people right there in the temple. And so we look at a church building today and one of the problems with church buildings is that people think the Shekinah glory dwells in that building. And the problem with church buildings today is that the church folks think that is the church. And the problem with church buildings today is that when you read church histories, now gentlemen, stick with me just a minute. Think, if you have a written church history of your church, go back and read that history and see if it doesn't show you the phases of the development of your property through the years. And if that is not the main storyline. Now, it's amazing. I I love to read little church histories. In fact, when I go to speak at another church, I'll ask them, do you have a written church history? Would you please send it to me? Because I want to know something about the church before I go there. one, One thing I've noticed through the years is that the chapters basically unfold as the new wings go onto the church building. It's, it's unbelievable. And folks will identify themselves and remember the past when they put that cornerstone in that building. And that is the significance of the development of that church. And oftentimes, that's about all that's in the church history. So we have identified church buildings with temple, and we made a huge mistake. Because the New Testament tells us what the temple is. And it's not the church building. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Leave your finger right there in Haggai because some of you won't find your way back if you don't. 
First <laughs> Corinthians three. Look at this with me. And uh, we'll see what the temple really is. Verses uh, 16 and 17, he's using it as an argument for how we ought to, the church ought to be sanctified. He says, verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves, notice that's plural, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you, plural? If anyone destroys the church building, God will destroy him. No. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. Okay, you want to know what's sacred? In the Old Testament, the temple, the physical temple was sacred because God dwelt in it. That's the reason it was sacred. Sacred means to be set apart consecrated for holy use. And where God dwells, the container, if you will, where He lives, must be consecrated. Where does He live now? In the hearts of His people. And when they gather, He is there with them. So their hearts must be consecrated. Their hearts must be sacred. That's the reason for the necessity of the new birth in order to be a true worshiper of God because your heart has to be set apart. That's the temple. All right. Now, one more example. If you'll turn over uh, toward the back of your New Testament to First Peter, and that would be on about uh, page two thousand, uh, a little bit more than that, two thousand eighteen, two oh one eight. And here you find the same sort of thing. Uh, Peter says in First Peter two four, as you come to him, the living stone. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Now look at verse five. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering a spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you see what he's saying? We are the temple and we are the priesthood. We're the ones offering sacrifices to the Lord, spiritual sacrifices, which is what? Our praises, as, he, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, the confession of our lips, the sacrifices offered to God. So now back to Haggai. So what we see in verse, verses 1 through 11 is that we are called to build the house of God. What is the house of God? It is not the building. Now, I love buildings. In fact, uh, among Protestants, I may be one who thinks buildings are very important. I think your church building is very important. I think it makes a statement about what you think about worship and about fellowship and about teaching the Word of God. And uh, if you believe your school building is important because schools are important, then for heaven's sakes, the church is important. If you think that your college campus is important because it's an institution of higher learning, the church is even more important. And therefore, the buildings ought to reflect what you think about the church. So when church buildings start to get shabby, you can pretty much count on it. Religion has just gotten shabby because it's reflecting what people think about the mission of what goes on in that place. So I tend to think very highly of buildings, but they're not the temple. They're not the dwelling place of God per se. The people are. And we are to build the house of God. What is the house? The temple of God. How do you build that? evangelism, and missions. So this is basically not a capital campaign text. This is a text to go into all the world and make disciples. It's a text about talking to your neighbor about Jesus Christ. It's a text about making disciples among your family, your neighborhood, your friends. That's how we're going to build the house of God. Now, notice in verse 1 that we are called by God. This is not something that Haggai dreams up. This is not something that Nehemiah is going to dream up. This is not something that Zerubbabel or Joshua dream up. This is something that God has in mind. And you notice in that very first verse, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to the governor, the, 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 the leader, the king, and to the high priest. So the word of God is coming to the people to say, I want you to build my house. So. This is not some preacher's idea. It's not some missiologist's idea. Not some missionary's idea. This is God's idea. 
And all you have to do is look in, in Matthew chapter 28. As a matter of fact, let's do that. Turn to the first book of the New Testament. Just a few books over. We're getting very close to the New Testament. By the way, we're going to be in the New Testament next fall, believe it or not. We'll be looking at one of the Gospels, Mark. But look at on page 1597, Matthew 28, verse 16. This is at the end of Jesus' earthly pilgrimage. And, you know, when you give your last words, I, I remember the last words my dad told me. It was the day before he died. The last day he lived, he, he couldn't speak. So we had our last conversation. He gave me his last words. I don't think he knew they were his last words. But he gave them to me the day before he died. And I tell you, I never forget what he told me. It, just, it, th- it was a thundering word spoken from a man who could barely speak. And I remember what he said. And I suppose these disciples, when they got their last look at Jesus Christ, they all remembered what he said before he left. And that's exactly the way he meant it. He wanted those to be the thundering words to all of his disciples everywhere for all ages. And this is what he said. Then the eleven disciples, that's because Judas had already betrayed him. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, you'll notice here he is placing all authority unto himself. So when he makes this statement, he makes it not only as his last statement, but he punctuates it by saying, I'm giving this to you as the authority of the universe. So, gentlemen, it seems to me very clearly he's saying this is your priority. This is what orders your life. And men are looking for a purpose. All you have to do is go to the bookstore, ask them what the number one bookseller has been, and they'll tell you the purpose-driven life. You go, oh, I guess we're trying to figure out what our purpose is. Right, we are trying to figure it out. And here it is. Our number one purpose is to fulfill the mission of God and to establish His kingdom to build His house. He wants His house built. And He will not come back until it's built. And He has people in every tribe and language and nation. This, when, when He says, go in, uh, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, verse 19, nations is ethnoi in Greek, which just means ethnic groups. There are 11,000 plus ethno-linguistic groups in the world. So he's saying go into all the ethno-linguistic groups, every culture, and make my name known and make disciples there. And uh, missiologists have done studies among those 11,200 plus ethno-linguistic groups to find out how many of them really have a substantial witness in them. And uh, half of them really do not have any significant evangelism or church planting going on at all, which represents 25% of the world's population. So we still have a huge work to do. Over half the nations, the ethnoi, have not really been reached. And it represents a fourth of the world's population, which would put it at like 1.6 or something like that billion people. Uh, So we we have a long way to go. But that's our purpose. It's given to us by the Lord. Now, you'll notice this same sort of language in, in Haggai. Back to Haggai now. That won't be the last time our fingers do the walking, but just for a moment, let's go back to Haggai. That is the book we're studying after all. Uh, there are basically four speeches by Haggai, and they all begin with you know, the word of the Lord. And you'll notice that in verse 1-1, one, one, in verse 2-1, 2-10, and 2-20, that he is constantly reminding them, this is not Haggai reading systematic theology and coming up with a sermon for the day. It's a revelation of the living God. So if you want your purpose in life, you want to be sure you go to the one who made you. Has he said anything about our purpose in life? Has he said something that will begin to make sense out of our lives? He has. So go to him. And when you go to him, you'll find out he really does have a purpose for your life. And when we get it, it makes all the difference in the world. Now, notice that we're not only called by God, and by the way, we all are, because Jesus said to the disciples when he went along the Sea of Galilee, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There you have it. When you're called to be a Christian, 
you are called to fulfill the purposes of God. So you get your job description at your conversion. You really do. Paul got his at conversion. Remember, he on the road to Damascus, he was knocked on his rear end by that great light and the voice from heaven. And that voice told him that not only you know, asked him, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And led him to himself eventually. But he said, I want you to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul got his job description at conversion. And sometimes we think, well, you know, I'm converted. I sure hope sometimes the Lord will tell me what I'm supposed to do. No, he told you. When you're led to him, he told you, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You're going to build my house. So we're all architects and builders of the kingdom of God. Now, you can do that as a banker. You can do that as a lawyer, a teacher, ditch digger, merchant, preacher, I suppose. Uh, it doesn't really matter. We all have the same job description. You have your occupation. I've got mine. We all have gainful employment, or at least most of us do. Uh, the ones that don't are the ones that look terrified this morning. <laughs> They're wondering what's going to happen earlier on. But we all have our occupations, gainful employment. But our job description in life is given to us by the Lord, and it's the same for all of us, to build his house. Now, notice in verses 2 through 11, God gets into an argument with us. We have to be corrected by God. Why do we have to be corrected? Well, number one, we've got our own ideas. Verse 2 says that God says about us, and he pejoratively calls us these people. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. So that's what we're saying. Uh, and we all have our own ideas. Uh, some of you may, well, let me just ask, how many of you have read a book came out two or three years ago called Blue Like Jazz? Better read that? A few of you have. It's by a man named Donald Miller. It's sort of a postmodern view of what Christianity is. It's kind of interesting. And, and a lot of our young adults especially are relating to it. You might take a look at it sometime. Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller. But in the midst of it, Donald Miller is talking about his own discipleship. And he, he's a writer, obviously. He wrote this book. And he's a loner. And eventually his pastor convinced him he needed to live in, into community with some other single guys. So he finally capitulates, comes out of the woods, and moves into community. And it's not going so well for him. He says, Tuck, Tuck was one of my best friends when he moved in. He is still one of my best friends, but for a while I wanted to kill him. He did not understand that life was a movie about me. Nobody ever told him. He would knock on my door while I was reading, come in and sit down in a chair opposite me, and then he would want to talk. He would want to hear about my day. I couldn't believe it. The audacity to come into my room, my soundstage, and interrupt the obvious flow of the story with questions about how I am. Living in community made me realize one of my faults. I was addicted to myself. All I thought about was myself. The only thing I really cared about was myself. I had very little concept of love, altruism, or sacrifice. I discovered that my mind is like a radio that picks up only one station. The one that plays me. K-D-O-N. All Don, all the time. I hear addicts talk about the shakes and panic attacks and the highs and lows of resisting their habit. And to some degree, I understand them because I've had habits of my own. But no drug is so powerful as the drug of self. No rut in the mind is so deep as the one that says, I am in the world. I am the world. The world belongs to me. All people are characters in my play. There is no addiction so powerful as self-addiction. I was in San Francisco recently staying at this bed and breakfast place for people who are in the city to do ministry. It was a small house, but there were probably 15 people living there at the time. The guy who ran the place, Bill, was always making meals or cleaning up after us, and I took note of his incredible patience and kindness. I noticed that not all of us did our dishes after a meal, and very few people thanked him for cooking. One morning, before anybody woke up, Bill and I were drinking coffee at the dining room table. 
I told him I lived with five guys and that it was very difficult for me because I liked my space and needed my privacy. I asked him how he kept such a good attitude all the time with so many people abusing his kindness. Bill sat down his coffee and looked me in the eye. Don, he said, if we are not willing to wake up in the morning and die to ourselves, perhaps we should ask ourselves whether or not we are really following Jesus. Ouch. It's usually about us, a story about us. But Jesus is teaching these folks it's really a story about him. Now, what had happened? I want you to turn back now to the book of Ezra. Let's see what's happening here. Page 695. 695. You will remember that our previous prophets were primarily preaching during the days of the Babylonian invasion. Well, that invasion took place. The people were taken into captive into Babylon. And they longed to return to Jerusalem. And if you'll turn the page to 697, you'll get a chronology. And if you remember that the Babylonians captured Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Now look at this chronology on page 697. You notice in 539, Babylon gets sacked by the Persians. All right? So Babylon took uh, the Jews into exile, and now they get defeated and sacked. Then notice that in 538, this man Cyrus, who is such an unusual figure in unbelieving history, that he's actually called, God says, I anointed him. Cyrus is not a believer as far as we know, but God used Cyrus to issue a decree that you will find in the first four verses of Ezra to bring the Israelites back to Jerusalem and to build the temple. Because Cyrus wanted temples among all the religions over which his uh, government reigned. So to the Jews too. So you'll notice in 539, Babylon is captured. Cyrus has his first year. And he orders the decree in about that time to build the temple. Then you'll notice 537, the return under Sheshbazar. Now, that is the same as Zerubbabel, okay? Zerubbabel was the, he was a grandson of Jehoiakim, so he had Davidic lineage, and he was set up under Cyrus and Persia as the governor. You know, he's not a king, because, or he could be a vassal king, but he's really a governor under the Persian rule. So they come back, and you'll notice they start building the altar in 537. You see that on page 697? That in 537 B.C., they build an altar. How do they build an altar? They just clean the rubble off the Temple Mount. And they put an altar there. They have no temple. They just build an altar so they can offer sacrifices. Good. Nice start. And then they begin to work on the temple in 536. But then notice 536 to 530, there is opposition. Now, turn over just a couple of pages in your Bible, to page 701, to Ezra 4. And let's just look at this. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came. These are the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. Come to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, that would be Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, there you have it. So back to your chart on page 697. That's the opposition that occurred. And between 530 then and 520, there was no work on the temple. All right? Now that's where we are right now. All right.
Now turn back to Haggai. Once again, we are studying Haggai today. Notice that the work had stopped. Why? Because they were facing opposition. Duh. You must expect to face opposition. Read the book of Acts and you will find that when you build the house of God, you are going to face opposition. And when you face opposition, you need preachers (laughs) to remind you what your task in life is. You face opposition. People don't like it when you build the house of God. Why? Because when you, how do you build the house of God? By leading them to Christ. How do, you, how do you present Christ? By explaining that they need Christ. Why do they need Christ? Because they're sinners. And under the judgment of God. That will make you really popular. You notice that? And you're going to be resisted. And then when you're resisted, you're going to think, well, maybe now's not the time. That's exactly what they were saying. And Haggai was saying, I mean, the Lord was saying through Haggai, now is the time. All right? Now let's look at uh, verse 3 through 11. And here we see that God reasons with us. We're saying it's not the time. And these are good people. These are not bad people. This is the remnant. Israel's been judged. So much of Israel's been destroyed. This is the remnant, the 50,000 who came back from Babylon. Most of them stayed back there. These are the... These are the Brits who actually came across the ocean to found America. These are the people who are the entrepreneurs. These are the people who are doing serious business to restore the Lord's land. These are not part-timers, okay? These are good people. And good people who are on the cutting edge sometimes will fall back when they face opposition. And God has to reason to it with us. And he's basically saying, look at your priorities. Is it a time for you to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? The question is, Is this a time for you to be building your business with no concern for building the city? Is this a time for you to be building your retirement account with no concern for the lost in the world? Is this a time for you to be building your reputation and climbing that ladder and having no concern for people who don't even know a ladder exists? Is this a time for you to be self-indulged when half the world is living on about a dollar and a half a day or less. Is this a time? That's the reasoning he's using with them. I don't know if that connects with you at all. It does with me. And the reason is, I want you to look at the world with me for just a moment. And the world uh, is a big place <laughs> and has about 6.4 billion people on it. But a lot of missiologists had picked out a part of the world. And those of you who are with me in Sunday school on, on Sunday are going to hear some things for about 10 minutes that you've already heard. But a part of the world that missiologists are really focusing on is what is known as the 1040 window. And you see that here in front of you. It's one third of the world's land mass, two thirds almost of the world's population, 60 percent of the world's population on one third of the land mass. It consists of 57 countries, 3.6 billion people. And you can see the countries that are included here. Now, why do missiologists focus on this part of the world? Uh, because from 10 degrees north, this is the reason it's called 1040 window, from 10 degrees north latitude to 40 degrees north latitude, from Africa over to Indonesia, even including Japan, is a part of the world that is particularly needy. And I want you to look at with me why that is. Well, first of all, let's look at the religious breakout of this group. You'll find that the 1040 window has about 80% of the world's Hindus, about 70% of the world's Muslims, has uh, 640 plus million non-religious people. I suppose that's mostly China. And then it has about a third of the world's Buddhists. So it's largely taken up with those uh, four major religious groups. Now notice, you shouldn't be too surprised, that along with these religions dominating this area, you find tremendous poverty. Two billion people live on less than $500 a year. 1.6 billion of them are in this window. That would be 77% of the world's most impoverished people. 77% of them live in one-third of the world's landmass, and that's what it is. So extreme poverty, $500 a year, that'd be about a dollar and a half a day, something like that, uh, or less for 2 billion people. Now, the other thing you'll notice about this part of the world is the progress of the gospel is very, very slow. 
the least evangelized nations in the world are those, they're called least evangelized. They have 2% or less genuine Christian believers in them. There are 3.2 billion people in this world, half the world's population, who live in what we call the least evangelized nations. That is, less than 2% believing Christian. Well, in this part of the world, of those 3.2 billion people, 3.1 of them live here. 95% of the world's least evangelized people live in this part of the world. So you're looking at 77% of the world's most impoverished people live here. 95% of the, of the world's least evangelized people live here. Now, if we merge these two things, poverty and unevangelized, and come up with the poorest, least evangelized peoples of the world, there are 1.4 billion people in this world, 1.4 billion, who, are, who live in, in cultures with less than 2% believers and also live on $500 a day or less. Okay? 1.4 billion people. 98% of them live here. All right. So you can see clearly that there is a part of the world that is in deep weeds, in great need, where the Lord's house has not really been built. Now, this uh, population that we're describing, the unevangelized poor, uh, is where 23% of the world's po- that, that consists of 23% of the world's population. The least evangelized poor. What percentage would you say of the world's missionaries are in that area? 23% of the world's population, 4% of the missionaries of the world. So obviously, even among the churches that are passionate about building God's house around the world have chosen to go to easier places. Because why? Resistance. Now's not the time. And Haggai is saying, maybe we better let the Lord reason with us just a little bit. We must look at our priorities. Is it time for us to be living in paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Secondly, he says, look at your results. Because the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. You see that in verses uh, 4 through 11. Basically, he's saying, what you're experiencing are the curses listed in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So, you're ignoring building God's house. And look at the description here in in verses 5 and and 6. Give careful thought to this, he says. You've planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. That is, you can't be satisfied. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. That is, you can't get enough clothes. You earn wages, and then you have inflation because your, your pockets have holes in them. You get more money, and it means less. And as we've said in this time together, even last fall, what we find in our own culture, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. So we have all this money, and it's not solving the problem of building his house, taking care of business here and around the world. Why is this? Well, it's probably because we're more obsessed with ourselves than with him. Here's the answer. Verse 8. Build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. Here you have it. The goal of your life is to bring him pleasure. The goal of your life is to honor him. That's it. Real simple job description. Bring him pleasure. Give him honor. That's it. So once we do that, we'll have no problems figuring out what it means to build his house. Now, let's look at verses 112 through 223. Look at your, your text. It says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. That's awfully hard to say at 6.30 in the morning. And the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So, 23 days after the word was first given, they start the work. When we repent and build, much blessing follows. But we must repent fully. What does that mean? Well, 
as we have seen before in looking at what the prophets mean by repentance, there's such a thing as insincere repentance. What is sincere repentance? Verse 12a, take the Scriptures as the very Word of God. He says, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So they, they understood that Haggai was not just a preacher. He was a messenger. He didn't make up his own message. He was a messenger for the king himself, the Lord. And they received the word of Haggai as the word of God. That's where it starts. Take your Bible and receive it as the Word of God. Not just another very helpful and interesting religious book, but the very oracles of the living God. That's where it starts. If you don't hear the Bible as the Word of God, you're not going to be able to repent. Because we all come under His authority. Jesus said, All authority in the heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, build the house. So you've got to come under His authority, first of all. Secondly, we must fear the Lord. We see in verse 12b, they feared Him. They worshipped Him. They acknowledged Him for who He is. First of all, the word that comes to them in the Bible is His word. Secondly, the one who's speaking that word is awesome. So we, find, we, we get recalibrated. Who's boss around here? I'm creature. He's creator. He's holy. I'm not. He's master. I'm servant. He's father. I'm son. So we get all these relationships straight. Then we fear Him. Now we've got it right. What happens with us most of the time is we get things way out of order. And when you get relationships out of order, you forget who you are, where you fit in this world, you're not going to figure out what your role is because you've forgotten you're under orders. And your job is to obey. And so we get our orders from the Lord, from the Scriptures. Thirdly, we live consciously in His presence. I am with you, declares the Lord. So we live what is known in Latin, in corum Deo. C-O-R-A-M, in corum Deo, before the face of God, in His presence. That's the way you live your life. You know, I've often said to you, you know, if, if Billy Graham were walking around with you today, you'd probably have really great language. <laughs> you'd probably be really nice to people. Probably wouldn't cheat on your books. You'd probably be very generous. What if Jesus is walking around with you, and He actually is, and Billy Graham is a piece of dirt compared to Him. So, Live in God's presence. Fourthly, do His work. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. They began the work. We have work to do. And my physical occupation is part of my work. It is the means to accomplishing the ultimate work I have to do. If I'm a lawyer, I've, I've got to be a good lawyer. I've got to devote myself to the statutes and the ordinances and, and to the Constitution and to legal ethics and, and to relationships and how to deal with a client and many, many other things you've got to deal with. But that's a means to glorify and please God. And then it's a means to build His house. So everything that I do is a means to build the house of God. That's what we're here for if we're disciples of Jesus Christ. And we do the work. You'll find this with the Apostle Paul. He says, I strive. I agonize, literally, in the, in the Greek. I did so. I strive with everything in me, he says in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. With all the energy that he gives me to accomplish the work. So it's hard work. But it's done with the energy that the Lord gives you. He is with you. And He will give you the energy you need. He'll give you the resources you need to be about His kingdom. Now, notice in verses in chapter 2, He will repay us abundantly. And we only have a few minutes to look at this. But let's just begin with noticing in verses 1 through 4, we can be courageous because He gives His presence. He says, Be strong, all you people of the land, and work, for I am with you. Be courageous. Be strong, He says. Not because of your strength, but because of my strength. Paul says, I strive with all the energy he gives me. It's his energy. If you're you're building his house, he's doing it with his energy through you. Now, those of you who go down to help with Katrina disaster, you'll notice you'll come back very tired. You'll say, I think I used my energy on that. (laughs) You used his energy, and he spent your energy. It's confluent. It's both you and God. That's the beauty of doing God's work and building his house. Notice, secondly, that we can be confident because He keeps His covenant. If you'll look in verse 5, He says, uh, just a moment. 
We are in Haggai, aren't we? Yeah. He says, this is what I covenanted with you. Somebody show me where that is. What verse am I in? Five. This is what I covenanted with you, verse five, when you came out of Egypt. Okay. So he is showing us uh, that he has made covenant with us. This is the point he's making. Now, what about this covenant? Notice, first of all, A, this is 25A, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. He, is, he was faithful in the past. And he reminds us constantly of how he's taken care of us in the past. You can think back in your own personal history. How has God been faithful to you? That's what he's saying to them. Do you remember Egypt? You know, this is 520 B.C. Egypt was like 1450. Or if you take the late date, 1250. I mean, it was a good ways before. It was, it was you know, seven to 900 years before. He says, you remember that? Well, no, I wasn't here. But you, you read about it. It's in the Pentateuch. You remember Egypt? I did that for your fathers. And I happen to be the same God. Do you remember when Jesus was raised from the dead? you remember the story? He's dead, cold, out, gone, buried in the tomb. Three days later, He's up. you remember that? That's the same God that's going to work with you today. So you remember that He was faithful in the past. Notice, uh, in, in that same verse, he is faithful in the present. He says, and my spirit remains among you in verse 5. So he's faithful in the present. So the same God who raised Jesus in the past, remember that? He's here today with you. The same God who worked miracles in Jesus' day on the earth is this God who's with you. And he will be faithful in the future. Verses 6 through 23. In a little while, I will once more. Okay, now in verse 6, he begins to introduce what's going to happen in the future. And this is our glory, gentlemen. We're building a house that is going to be absolutely glorious. Now, when the people came back and began to see what was being done on the Reconstruction, of course, it lay there for 16 years incomplete. And so it would be like a major, the major building in, in our country just sitting there incomplete with no work being done on it for 16 years. And everybody's going, oh, me, oh, my, oh, my. Not like the old days. And some of these people could remember Solomon's temple. The old people who had made this long journey, they remembered Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. It was glorious. And they're going, oh, this is pitiful. This is really pitiful. And Haggai is saying, I've got a word for you. This house is going to have more glory than ever before because God is going to fill it with his own glory. He's going to bring the, na- he's going to bring the riches of the nations into this place. So we notice, first of all, about the future. Number one, he will exalt us among the nations. He says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. He's saying to you, gentlemen, look, right now, we don't look that impressive. Right now, we don't look even as cool as the next guy who's not a Christian. Right now, oftentimes we look very defeated and weak. Right now, sometimes, to be honest, Christianity is an embarrassment. To be honest. Right now, we do not look that cool. One day... We're going to look really cool. And all the nations will bring all their wealth to us guys. And we're going to be the kings and the rulers of the entire universe. He will give us peace. Right now, we don't have a whole lot of peace. We have this huge war going over in Iraq. I've got a son who will be leaving in a few months. Some of you have sons who are over there. And it's not a real pretty picture. People are getting bombed up, beaten up, destroyed. It looks hopeless. And we say, where is peace? And then because of that lack of peace, we've got division in our own country. And people who are ready to go to war with each other, and of course they do it every four years, and hopefully they'll keep it that way in the ballot box. But who knows? There's tremendous division. There's going to be peace one day. And God says, I'm promising you, build my house. That house is going to be glorious, and there's going to be peace there. So keep building. Don't give up. And then he says, we will overcome our defilement. He says, you can look at the argument in here. He says, if something... Unclean touches something clean. Does that clean thing remain clean? No, it's defiled. He says, same with you. You're unclean. How do you expect to touch anything to build this house with your unclean selves, your defiled hearts? And then he says, I'm going to bless you. In in verse 19, look at the end of 19. From this day on, I will bless you. How do you figure that? Because God is gracious 
And he's saying, look, I know you're defiled. I know you've done all this crud in your life. I know that you're embarrassed when you think about your personal history. I know that you've got these things you're still feeling guilty over. Let me tell you something. I'm taking the defiled of the world and I'm making them consecrated and they're going to build my house. It's those doofuses who are going to do it for me. Those defiled people. So he's going to overcome our disqualification to be the builders of his house. That's the most amazing thing in all the world to me. Always is. And then verses 20 through 22, he says, I'm going to defeat your enemies. He says uh, in, in verse 21, tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. They'll be doing warfare with each other. They will completely collapse, even if it looks like you're about ready to be overwhelmed. The church is not going to fail. And the gates of hell will not prevail against her, Jesus said. We're on a march, and the kingdom is growing. There are 20,000 people a day coming to Christ in China. There are 17,000 people a day coming to Christ in Africa. There are people all over the world that are building the kingdom. The percentage of Christians is growing, has been growing for 2,000 years. We're up to 34%, and it's getting larger and larger and larger. You say, well, I don't see a whole lot of activity around here. There's a whole lot of activity around in the world. And you say, well, it seems like our missionary force is declining in North America, and probably it is. But the missionary force in the world church is absolutely exploding. In 1973, we had 3,411 non-North American missionaries. Today we have 103,000 in 32 years. It's grown that much. It's exploding. The Lord is overcoming all opposition, even when we're afraid. And lastly, He will establish His chosen King. Oh, what a great text this is. Verse 23, He says, On that day I will take you, My servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and I will make you like My signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Who is the descendant of Zerubbabel? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. All you have to do is look in Matthew chapter 1, look in the genealogy, you'll find Zerubbabel there, and you'll find his great, 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 great grandson, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, King, the chosen one of the Lord. He is establishing his kingdom. He is building the house. And the people built the house for 520 more years, and then the Messiah came, and now it's exploded not only in Jerusalem, not only so the nations can stream to it, but now the temple is going out to the nations. And the temple is taking over the whole world. That's what Haggai is saying. This is no capital campaign text. This is a campaign text for taking over the entire world with the love of Jesus Christ. So, gentlemen, you've got your job description. Enjoy yourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us such a great job to do. Thank you for allowing us to partner with Haggai, Zerubbabel, and all of the thousands of international missionaries and those who are local, and ourselves being missionaries right in the work where we're going today. And Lord, help each one of us to deal with the mundane and the little things that are set before us today, knowing this is important because I am a builder of the house of God. And so that every little thing I do, Lord, either pleases you or it doesn't please you. It either honors you or it doesn't honor you. And we pray that you'll help us to please you and honor you today and be the instruments of building your house in the place where you've given us to serve. That's our prayer, Lord. We make it in the name of the chosen king himself, the son of Zerubbabel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.